Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Get a grip. I'm Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour. Is there a solution for the disastrous behavior of parents at youth sporting events? Hear how officials and referees don't feel safe. On the personal finance front, what's the thinking when credit card balances soar out of control? We'll examine the psychology. Some workers, unhappy with their company's return to office mandate, are trying to game the system by coffee badging. We'll explain it. And a look at how frequently guns go missing in the mail each year. It definitely happens a lot more than I think a lot of people would anticipate across the country. There are thousands of firearms that disappear in transit every year at ATF, which tracks these incidents of gun loss and gun theft. And during that time period, UPS, FedEx, and the U.S. Postal Service were kind of noted as shippers that had several incidents of guns going missing in the mail. Tamia Folks at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel on how firearms disappear while in transit every year. Well, to some parents, coaches and officials are deterrents to their children's athletic careers. Obstacles along a path to wins and playing time. Sometimes parents will do anything to remove the coach or the official from this path toward high achievement, even resort to verbal and physical abuse. How did we get here and what can be done? Here's Stephen Borelli, sports writer at USA Today. Steve, officials don't feel safe? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I think that parents don't realize that element, and I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of uh, administrators and people in charge of high school sports around the country and they say that you know generally people don't really see referees as people they see them as sort of impediments to their children and so they say and they feel and they do whatever they whatever they want and so therefore um, they're not realizing what they're doing but yes referees umpires around the country from the youth through the high school level um, are starting to fear for their safety. You know, they, they have to walk to the parking lot after a game, and they're a fearful of a parent meeting them along the way, an angry parent. I mean, in my story, there's several documented incidents of parents physically attacking officials, um, and I call it an epidemic in the problem, in, in the story, not just because of the violence, but because of the way these officials feel and the way they're leaving their jobs and, and really threatening um, sports as we know it. Do you see a solution here? Yeah, yeah, there's always a solution. I, you know, I just think the problem is, I think, I think there's just so many parents, you know, preoccupied with, with, with kids. I mean, I think, I think it might have to be in the short term something where fans are not allowed to high school events um, for, for a period of time, which, which, you know, one administrator told me was, it would be an extremely st- sad state of affairs. And I, I feel, I would feel that way too, since I have a son who plays high school baseball. Mm-hmm. But I think in order for our children Something like that needs to happen in the short term. You know, and I think I talked to a lot of parents about this. Um, you know, everyone, you can control things at the youth level. You know, you can do what you want. You can get to know the coach. You can kind of get your kid in a good position. But once they get to high school, they are on their own. And, you know, they have to prove themselves to a coach, and the, and the coaches don't want to hear from parents. So, I, you know, if you're going to still try to affect things when you're a parent and your kid is in high school, all you're doing is hurting your kid. Mm. We're speaking with Steve Borelli parent sports columnist at USA Today. He goes by Coach Steve. He's written a piece called Sports Parents Are Out of Control and Officials Don't Feel Safe. Uh, I do believe that part of this falls to coaches in communicating to parents what's expected of them on the sideline. I know I tell mine, please don't speak to the referee. That's my job. Don't, don't coach your kids. 
I've been with them all week long. I gave them the pregame speech. I gave them the final instructions before I substituted them in. So since you weren't privy to that, don't coach them either. But, I mean, do you, do you feel that coaches share some of that responsibility? Uh, 100%. You know, I, I think it's a vicious cycle because coaches feel a lot of pressure um, because parents have such demands. But, yes, I mean, I've experienced what you're talking about. I mean, you have, especially when you're in a gym, gymnasium-type situation, like a basketball game, and you have five parents yelling instructions to players while a coach is trying to coach. I mean, that, I think if you, if you look at it from the outside, I think these, even these parents would agree that, that this is not helping at all. You know, and then you have the other side of with the officials. You have the coach who gets exasperated by a call, and then that leads to the entire fan section, parent section of that team getting upset about the call, too, and that, and that brings the heat to the official. I mean, we, parents are acting as if no one makes any mistakes. You know, coaches make mistakes, officials make mistakes, parents make mistakes. I mean, everyone makes mistakes in life, right? And so what lessons are we teaching by trying to control everything? <laughs> I had one, uh, <laughs> one, was it an official? Uh, say to me one time, um, Here's something you ought to say to a parent. Do you barge into your kid's math class and shout things like this to the teacher and the kid during math class? But um, I think there was a, a, a soccer club in Southern California that tried banning parents at one time. I don't know how it went, but which do you sense is worse, the, the high school or the, the club level? Oh, um, for sure the club level, because high school um, administrators – uh, can come down on coaches and can come down on parents. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, coaches inevitably have to answer to officials, uh, to uh, administrators, like a principal. Whereas at the youth, I mean, you know, it's kind of like the Wild West, these, like, youth tournaments you go to. I mean, you have um, one person who's usually overwhelmed trying to trying to control an entire tournament, you know, 60 teams sometimes, you know, and, and there's parents at every game. There's every game. There's officials working four or five games. There's certainly no one like at the high school level that's able to walk an official safely to the car. Um, you know, I've been at travel baseball tournaments where you have parents actually yelling for kids on, an, on a nine-year-old team to drop the ball, you know, and there's a fly ball in the outfield like on our team when their team hits a fly ball. I mean, you know, it just it's just absolutely out of control. I mean, that kind of behavior would not be accepted at a high school level, and those people would be kicked out immediately. Mm. Thanks, Steve. Steve Borelli, sports writer at USA Today. Coming up next, gaming, your company's return to office policy. Did you know traditional bed sheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and other gross ailments. Fears, though, that you can put to bed with Miracle Made bed sheets. Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermal regulating to keep you at a perfect temperature all night. Miracle Made is self cleaning, self cooling, luxurious, eco friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. My wife and I love them. Now, my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleep cool all summer and warm all winter. The website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. Claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-made products are backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. trymiracle.com slash Gordon to save big. You can sleep cool, comfy, and clean. Miracle-made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. Sleep clean with Miracle. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Some white-collar workers are leaving the office almost as soon as they arrive and calling to practice coffee badging. 
Callum Borchers, who writes the On the Clock column at the Wall Street Journal, says we've entered the gamesmanship phase of the return-to-office battle between bosses and their subordinates. He says coffee badging seems like a way to hack the RTO system, but there are flaws, not the least of which is the term's fuzzy etymology. Besides, you should never trust your professional fate to a buzzword. Remember how quiet quitting became quiet firing? Cal, what is coffee badging? Well, it basically means you show up to the office for only a brief time, long enough to have a cup of coffee, and then you get out of there. It's not that you're slacking off necessarily, but you're going back home to finish the workday. What I think is kind of funny, Gordon, about this buzzword is there isn't a clear agreement, though, on what the badging refers to. Is it your employee ID that you use to badge into the office and have your cup of coffee? Or is that too literal? Others say, no, 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 the badge actually refers to an imaginary award that you get for FaceTime in the office. It's 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 like an, a, a badge that would be pinned in the boss's mind instead of like a Boy Scout sash or something. You know how it is, though. It's weird. You, 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 you swipe in, for example, and that, that's you're being kept track of. You're being tracked. Uh, you, you may not swipe out, but certainly there are security cameras or something that pick you up if somebody wanted to really, really know where you were and how long you were there. Yes, and my sense of it, Gordon, is most companies would rather not have to do that kind of policing, but we have reported on more companies that are tracking not only whether you swipe in, but also how long you actually stay in the office. So there are places where you badge in and badge out, Um, or there are other indicators. Maybe you use your your ID badge to use uh, the coffee machine or the the photocopier or whatever. There might be other places in the office. So if, if you just sort of tapped your badge once in the morning and never again, maybe that would be a signal that you didn't actually hang around very long. What are the potential consequences here? You did touch on that. Yeah. I mean, the consequences are, look, you might get away with it in the short run. And if you work for a big team, maybe you can slip back out and nobody notices. But uh, what I've been told by CEOs is that we plan to start rewarding in the coming years, the people who embrace not just the letter, but the spirit of being in the office. So that means collaborating. Yes. It means certainly hanging around for afternoon meetings, because maybe that's when there's a, a, a plum assignment that comes up and the people who were there, it's sort of like, a raffle, right? Must be present to win. Uh, You're going to get that assignment and then say, hey, we got to, you know, that's going to lead to promotions and raises down the line. It's it's a longer term consequence is the way managers are framing it. We're speaking with Callum Borchers, columnist at the Wall Street Journal. This piece is called Want to Beat Your Return to Office Mandate? Try coffee badging, but at your own risk. Um, You referenced this woman, Annie Lowe in Utah. I think it's like a dental technology company she works at. What, uh, What was her story? Annie's kind of like the antithesis of the coffee badging. She, she shows up early in the morning for her cup of coffee, but she stays all day. And, and what she exemplifies, though, is this idea that that's a way to get noticed by your manager. She kind of became this like virtual poster child for in-office effort early this year when an executive at her company uh, posted a photo of her on LinkedIn, and she was surrounded by empty desks and, and darkened monitors. And, you know, and the boss was raving about how here, you know, here's Annie you know, before the sun's up, you know, grinding away. Uh, you know, she's she's headed for big things. And, you know, it, it triggered an interesting debate in the comments field about whether this was a good or bad thing. But whether you like it or not, Annie got promoted six months later. So so it worked wow. for her. Are we at a point where there are some predicting that if you're not back full time in the office, you are going to be whether it's six months, two years from now? Well, that's how many managers feel. I mean, I thought KPMG, the consulting firm, had a really interesting report last week, uh, their annual CEO outlook. And almost two-thirds of those CEOs said they expect over the next few years to get their traditional office workers back full-time. So that's that's a pretty big number. Of course, 
you know, many uh, employees would say, well, okay, well, that's wishful thinking on the boss's part. I think there are always going to be exceptions for people who have a special talent. Uh, you know, an interesting example this week was the, the video game company Roblox, uh, which uh, told most of their remote workers, you got to move, like physically move back to within an office range so you can be in at least three days a week. But they also said, we're making some exceptions for, uh, you know, uh, people with special talents or a lot of institutional knowledge. So, you know, if you can, <laughs> you got to make it worth the company's while to give you more flexibility, which is a little bit closer to where we were pre-pandemic, I think, right? Like that was sort of a special treatment that you had to earn. It wasn't available to everybody. Thanks, Cal. Callum Borchers, columnist at the Wall Street Journal. By the way, in that recent survey of chief executives by KPMG that Cal referenced, in which almost two-thirds said they envision employees working in offices full-time three years from now, there's another part to that. 90% of those CEOs said they'll reward office goers with favorable assignments, raises, and promotions. Across the country, thousands of firearms disappear while in transit every year. What happens here? A report from this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka. Every year, firearms are stolen in burglaries, robberies, and larcenies. They're also disappearing while in transit. We get the story from Tamia Folks, public investigator reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. To me, your story starts with an anecdote about a Wisconsin man who won a gun in an auction. What happened? Yeah, definitely. So I can start at the beginning. The Journal Sentinel got an email from a Wisconsin resident named Paul Bailey, and he's 75 years old. He had won a gun auction through gunbroker.com in August and received the UPS tracking number from the FFL, the local gun store that was going to ship that firearm to him in Wisconsin. And the package contained a Smith & Wesson Model 686 Plus revolver and eventually then became stalled in UPS shipment. Mr. Bailey reached out to the Journal Sentinel because he had gotten kind of no updates about where this gun had gone and was extremely confused about how something could just vanish in the mail. And so he reached out to us to kind of get a clear idea of why and how this could happen and see if he could find accountability for this situation. And you found that this is not a rare occurrence. Yeah, it definitely happens a lot more than I think a lot of people would anticipate. Across the country, there are thousands of firearms that disappear in transit every year. It sits around about 13,000 of those thefts occurring in interstate shipment. And that could be, you know, lost or theft incidents that are reported to the uh, ATF, which tracks these incidents of gun loss and gun theft. And during that time period, UPS, FedEx, and the U.S. Postal Service were kind of noted as shippers that had several incidents of guns going missing in the mail, whether that had been like employees taking them from trucks. There were a few stories throughout the country that had noted that and also things just disappearing in transit where the box vanishes um, and no one really is able to report where it's gone. Tamia, are there certain rules about shipping a firearm? Do the packages have to be marked a certain way? Yeah, so these packages in almost every single case are supposed to look like any other box that's being shipped in transit by a company like UPS or by USPS or FedEx. Um, they're regular boxes. They're not supposed to indicate that there's a gun inside, and that is a safety resource. And the other thing that a lot of people, I think, don't recognize about the situation is that a gun is not just landing on someone's doorstep, but it is required to be shipped to a gun store or a regulated and certified FFL Um, to be able to be shipped to someone at any point. So a gun owner who would win a gun on a gun auction site like Gun Broker, like Mr. Bailey, would then go pick it up from a local gun store, and it would have been delivered by that shipping service. 
And that's kind of how that process works. So there are a lot of very strict rules about how this happens, including the marking on the outside of the packages and that process for getting it to a gun store from another state. Um, But again, there are cracks in the system that allow kind of things like this to occur. We're speaking with Tamia Folks from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Do delivery companies have security practices in place for handling firearms? Yeah, a lot of them do. Um, For this story, I specifically spoke pretty explicitly with EPS about the situation. They did note that they were unable to locate Bailey's package despite a thorough investigation, but they weren't able to disclose the specific steps of their investigative process in order to protect its effectiveness. They told me um, they don't want employees to know exactly how they go about that process of making sure that a gun isn't stolen. But in the scenarios where we have seen employees, let's say, taking a gun, there was an incident in Nashville that happened earlier this year in which um, an employee had slipped a package with a gun um, into his belt loop of his pants, for example, and they were able to identify that. He was arrested. So there's certainly a security process. It's just a matter of this gun specifically. It's still kind of no process or like sites as to where it's gone. So it can, again, there are cracks in the system that allow things like this to happen. Do sellers or the stores uh, follow up when their, their merchandise goes missing? Do they do anything? Yeah, so in this scenario, there was a gun store in North Carolina that was handling the shipment of Mr. Bailey's gun. Mr. Bailey notified them that the gun hadn't arrived to the gun store that he had requested his local FFL. They kind of jumped right into action and tried to get in contact with UPS about the gun's location. It took a few days. They they complained a little bit on the phone with me in our interview about um, the response time between them and UPS because usually the company recommends about 7 to 10 days before someone who's receiving any package kind of reaches out and says this is missing they want you to wait a couple days to see when it'll land on your doorstep Um, maybe it like is just a little bit delayed so they want to make sure they're giving that wiggle room and space but again for a situation like a gun that's something probably don't want to do Um, so this ffl reached out to ups they got on the phone with them they started that investigative process and then eventually were able to get a refund for mr bailey but they did say they didn't get the full amount um, that the gun cost back. So they they lost a little bit of money in that process and, and then, again, still don't know where that gun is. That's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka with reporter Timia Folks at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, part of the USA Today Network. Aging is a journey that can gather some unwanted passengers, namely those senescent or zombie cells. Hi, it's Gordon Deal, and I used to feel that sluggish middle-aged mood, those aches after workouts. I could practically feel those old cells just taking up space, bogging me down. Then I found Qualia Senolytic. Think of it as giving your body a little spring cleaning, pruning away the worn-out cells, and letting the lively ones shine. And you only take it two days a month. Crafted with vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO ingredients. Plus, with a 100-day money-back guarantee, you've got a risk-free journey to rejuvenation. Resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Gordon for up to $100 off and use code Gordon at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash Gordon for an extra 15% off. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's show. Neurohacker.com slash Gordon. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate you spending part of your weekend here. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka coming up this half hour. Outrageous credit card balances. Also, kids who like when parents track them. Plus, the challenge in finding cruise bargains and a big bet 
on the World Series. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, why do some people end up with horrifying credit card balances? On the way to five-figure or six-figure credit card debt, you have to imagine there's a moment or two when cardholders think, uh, maybe this is getting out of control. Insight into the psychology of it from Jonathan Clements at HumbleDollar.com. Jonathan, what did you look at? So I recently heard about a couple who had $40,000 in credit card debt, and that got me thinking. Um, All the people I've known over the years who have had five-digit credit card debt, there was even a woman I knew who had $100,000 in credit card debt. And that got me thinking, why is it? that people end up with this sort of credit card debt. You would imagine that somewhere along the line, they'd say, hey, this is getting out of control. Mm -hmm. I should do something about this. And yet they go on merrily putting more and more money on their credit cards. All right, so uh, you made me think, I mean, if you have that much debt, 40,000, even the $100,000 example that you gave, I would imagine you're fairly well off to be able to get access to that kind of limit. It does seem that credit card companies will issue credit cards left and right. So maybe even if you have a relatively modest income, it's possible to end up with multiple credit cards. I mean, I remember one of my early jobs here in the U.S., the uh, person who was the administrative assistant for our department announced that she had just managed to get a new credit card. So she was going to go on a shopping spree this weekend. Hmm. Uh, So I think... You know, you'd be surprised by how much credit people can get access to, especially through credit card companies, because, you know, even if a certain number of people default, you know, charging that 20 percent interest, that can cover a lot of debts that end up being forgiven. Yeah. All right. So you kind of dive into the psychology of it. How do some people arrive at this point? I don't think many people set out to say, hey, I'm just going to rack up the credit cards. Instead, they have some sort of financial emergency. You know, maybe they have to pay for somebody's funeral, maybe they get, end up out of work, and suddenly they find themselves with five or $6,000 of credit card debt. And at that point, the floodgates often open. People say to themselves, hey, I've already got this five or $6,000 in credit card debt. What's a few thousand more? And you, next thing you know, you're on your way to five-figure debt, a debt that you simply can't pay off without spending months and months writing checks to the credit card company. That's a tough way to live. I mean, I've... I haven't racked it up that much, but I've racked it up and uh, racked up enough debt at times where it's hurt, and I, I I do not like living that way. And what happens, I think, in in case of couples is is that there's a certain amount of enabling behavior. All right, you went on a shopping spree, so guess what? You know, you can't question me if I go on a mm. shopping spree, and so they amass all this debt, and they never really talk to each other about what's going on. And of course, you know that. <laughs> That's a formula for disaster, but I think it happens in a lot of marriages. Yeah, We're speaking with Jonathan Clements. He's the founder and editor of HumbleDollar.com. He's written a piece called House of Cards, and it's about kind of the psychology of rolling up so much credit card debt. What was the point you made about uh, magical thinking? So as you mass this credit card debt, no doubt some people say, hey, I'm just going to live with credit card debt. It's just going to be a way of life. But I think a lot of other people imagine that there's going to be some point in the future when they're going to be able to pay off this debt. And at least in the the case of the people I've known, often there's a certain amount of magical thinking. They assume that they're going to get this big financial break somewhere down the road. There was a woman I knew who would talk about hunting elephants. She was in sales 
And she had all this credit card debt. And her assumption was that one day she was going to land this major client. She was going to get a promotion. She was going to get a big bonus. And that was going to allow her to turn her financial life around. But as far as I know, that poor little elephant was never caught. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan Clements, founder and editor of HumbleDollar.com. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Teenagers have long balked at telling parents where they are. Now they are asking their parents to track them. The trend from Julie Jargon, columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Julie, what's this about? Yeah, I mean, you can probably um, recall from your teenage days, you may not have wanted your parents to know where you were at all times. I know I didn't. (laughs) That was before the days of um, smartphones. But uh, teens now have not only grown up in a time of a lot of upheaval and uncertainty in the world, but they now have the opportunity to see it all play out in real time on every device they have all day long. And so that's created a lot of anxiety for kids, you know, everything from, you know, school shootings and climate change and war, it's all being broadcast 24-7 on their devices. And um, so a lot of teens um, just don't feel safe. And having their parents know their whereabouts for many teens makes them feel safer. Wow. All right. So Life360 has become one of those apps. I know we use it in my family. Um, it, it sounds like it's it's like a security blanket in some cases. Yes. I mean, it, it can create a false sense of security. Obviously, just, you know, just knowing where your kids are doesn't mean you can protect them from harm. It might mean you know more quickly if something bad has happened, if they've gotten in a car accident or something like that. Um, but it does make uh, kids and parents feel better knowing that they, uh, you know, that their loved ones can see where they are and get to them if need be. Yeah. How popular, by the way, is an app like Life360? Well, Life360 is, is one of the biggest um, location sharing apps, and it's huge. It's really huge. The downloads of the app have doubled um, in the U.S. just in the last two years, and it has more than 33 million monthly active users in the U.S. and another 20 million um, uh, overseas. We're speaking with Julie Jargon. She writes the family and tech column for the Wall Street Journal. This piece is called Teens Want Parents to Track Their Phones and Monitor Every Move. Um, what did some of these kids tell you as you were pulling this together? Yeah, well, I talked to a 16-year-old who um, said that her biggest fear is abduction. Now, abductions by strangers are actually very rare. Um, but there was a there was a big case in her hometown in which a ten year old girl um, a few years ago was kidnapped and murdered by a relative, and it was you know the talk of the town for a long time um, because it took eight months to find her body and the news coverage of the case was constant, and it left this this uh, teenager very upset, and so she you know got worried about what would happen if she were abducted, and so she liked the idea of her parents um, tracking her whereabouts on Life360. Although she'd actually started using it even before that, she wanted to know where her parents were when they were out and when they would be back home. Hmm. She said she was a very anxious kid. And uh, she and her friends also used the app to track one another's location. Yeah. There was a reference in your story to uh, helicoptering and bubble wrapping your kid. Uh, what about, I don't know, allowing them to live a little bit without so much yeah, tracking? Exactly. That's um, that's kind of the other part of this is that just modern helicopter parenting also can contribute to kids' anxiety. You know, if uh, kids feel like 
there is a lot to be afraid of and that going outside their house is dangerous and that the world is a dangerous place, that, you know, that will rub off on the kids and make them feel, uh, you know, anxious and unsafe. So, you know, on the part of the parents who, who push the tracking on their kids, you know, maybe it's a good idea to back off that a little bit so the kids don't have this sense of fear all the time. Thanks, Julie. Julie Jargon columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, why it's hard to find a bargain for a cruise. Hey there, Gordon Deal here, and everyone knows the best part of fall is the food. I found a new way to embrace the season. Hello Fresh Markets, limited time fall flavors. Let me tell you about their apple cider cake with caramel sauce. Man, so good. Are you looking for the perfect game night treat? Write this one down, barbecue pulled pork nachos. Speaking of which, I recently had the kids home from school, and HelloFresh not only saved me time, but made me look like a pro chef. Using farm-fresh ingredients, you're going to get the flavors of fall in every bite. And trust me, you don't want to miss out on the mini pumpkin cheesecake. It's perfect for a me-time treat. Want to give it a shot? Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon and use code 50Gordon for 50% off plus free shipping. That's right, 50% off plus free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon with code 50Gordon. HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon with code 50Gordon. Glad you're with us. Even with the busy summer travel season behind us, cheap cruises may be harder to find. That said, there are still some rules of thumb to follow. Here's Nathan Diller, consumer travel reporter at USA Today. Nathan, help us out. Yeah, so cruise prices have been going up for a while. Um, one travel agent I spoke with said that they've been going up for over a year. Um, it you know, still is a really great value in travel, and, and people have, um, have had a large appetite for it. So it's just been kind of creeping up uh, ever since the recovery from COVID. Okay, and why? Are there some main reasons? Yeah, you know, demand is is a big one. Um, another uh, factor is the cost of goods, the cost of labor. Those have gone up, so uh, cruise lines are seeing higher operating costs, and uh, we pair that with demand, and, and that can lead to uh, price increases for sure. Okay, but it's not like the cruise lines are suffering financially. No, you know, I mean, I think a lot of them have seen consistently high demand and, and have just been able to raise prices as a result of that. Uh, a lot of lines reported... Um, high earnings in, in recent earnings calls and um, have cited high demand as, as a reason for that. So uh, they've just been able to, you know, raise prices accordingly as, uh, as they've continued that recovery uh, coming out of COVID. Okay. Uh, not that they'd hint it necessarily, I guess, but do they indicate that they won't be going up at this pace forever? You know, in some cases, they've hinted that actually they will keep going up. Um, Carnival Corporation, which is the largest uh, cruise operator in the U.S., they said that they are well positioned to drive 2024 pricing even higher. Um, and they said they have less inventory remaining to sell than the same time last year, um, despite a capacity increase. So you could even expect um, some of those prices to, to keep creeping up next year. Boy. We're speaking with Nathan Diller, consumer travel reporter at USA Today. His piece is called, Yes, Cruise Prices Are Up. Here's Why Cheap Sailings May Be Harder to Find. All right, so what do we do if we're in search of a bargain and we want to cruise then? Yeah, you know, there's some good rules of thumb. Um, wave season is uh, a great time to look for cruises. That's typically from January through March. 
Um, so you're going to find a lot of the best deals during that time. Um, flexibility is always just a great rule when you're looking for deals and travel. Um, if you're flexible on your dates, um, maybe you can look for cruises when kids are in school and less people are sailing. Um, holiday cruises tend to be pretty expensive. So if you're looking to sail, you know, at New Year's or at Christmas, um, those might be a little more expensive. So looking sort of outside of those dates. And, um, and flexibility, uh, like I said, is just really the, the you know, kind of key. Um, if, you're, if you're seeing a high price, maybe try a different date and uh, you can see that price come down a little bit. All right. Well, when we talk about flexibility for cruises, is it always about dates or could it be about destinations also? Yeah, destinations for sure. I mean, um, I think there are some places like the Caribbean uh, is always a great place to look. Um, it's somewhere that you can typically find pretty cheap sailings, depending on the type of cruise that you want to do, the length, um, the line, if you're looking at something a little more mainstream versus something more uh, upscale, uh, you can typically find a pretty good deal. Uh, you just have to sort of play around a little bit. And then another good thing to note is that in a lot of cases, cruise lines will uh, honor a price decrease. It's always a great idea if you're working with a travel advisor. Um, they can monitor this for you, but also monitor it yourself if, if you're looking on your own. If you've already booked something, um, you can often reach out to the cruise line and uh, and note, note to them that you've found a lower price for the sailing that you booked, and uh, they might work with you to um, honor the lower price. So that's always also a good thing to know. Thanks, Nathan. Nathan Diller, consumer travel reporter at USA Today. Well, we'll finish with this. Sometimes you just have a feeling. It's not how all sports bettors work, but 46-year-old New Yorker Dave Menashe has been around gambling much of his life and felt like the Arizona Diamondbacks were not being respected by both pundits and oddsmakers before the season. For the win at USA Today, says Mr. Menashe, who lives in Brooklyn and is in real estate with two childhood friends, said he wagers regularly on football, the NCAA tournament, and the occasional baseball game. He bets 500 bucks per game and is selective about the wagers he makes. He doesn't place many futures bets, but he did place two this season, one for the Yankees to win the World Series and one for 500 bucks on the Diamondbacks to win it all at odds of 180 to 1. That wager would win him $90,000 if Arizona beats Texas in the Fall Classic. If the Diamondbacks win the World Series at 180 to 1, they will have the longest odds of any World Series champion likely in Major League Baseball history. The 1991 Minnesota Twins had the second longest odds of any champion at 80 to 1. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Koshenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend.